That was the best part of Children's Church. He's done. <laughs> okay. Now, last time I spoke, I spoke upon the gifts of the Spirit and the essential necessity of those gifts functioning in both the individual and a fellowship. And in one of the scriptures that I used there, there was one particular verse caught my eye, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. And the verse was, that I used was 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. So it is actually verse 17, but um, that was in, that's in the middle of that um, instructions about spiritual gifts. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, So that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That was the verse that has um, led to what I want to speak to about this morning, which is the new creation versus the flesh. And in this, when it says he is a new creation, the old things have passed away and all things have become new, we need to understand <coughs> that this is a spiritual renewal. Okay, because um, it'd be brilliant if you went into the water, like I went into the water now, and came out and looked like Barney, completely renewed and muscled and absolutely... But it's not. we all know that's not the way it happens. The same body comes out of the water, but a totally new creation comes out of that accepting Christ. And so it has to be a spiritual renewal in that respect because the body continues to decay as we can all testify to as we get older and but the thing is the spiritual renewal does guide the physical to a certain degree and guides the physical life to the degree that we surrender ourselves to God and so there is a renewal at times physically God healed my back, renewed my back when I surrendered a particular thing to him which comes under the category of strongholds if you like and he out of his love and his sovereignty instantly healed smashed vertebrae on my back now that's a renewal um, physical physically affected me so there is that aspect but primarily we are being fitted for eternity and our bodies will not go, these bodies won't go to heaven, our spirit will continue and we will be given these new and glorious bodies. So have a look and see what is this new life. And if we look in Ephesians chapter 4, in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 17 to 32. And this speaks about how we can attain to this new life, what it is we should be looking for, and it also gives us an idea of God's expectations. Ephesians 4 verses 17 to 32 read, Therefore I say this, 
and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk even also the rest of the as the rest of the nations walk in the vanity of their mind, having been darkened in this intellect, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance which is in them because of the hardness of their heart, who, having cast off all feeling, gave themselves up to lust, to the working of all uncleanliness with greediness. There's the picture of the world and the unsaved person. We'll all fit into that and it will be varying degrees of severity of how these things work out in their lives. But unsaved all fall into that category. Verse 20, But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. For you have put off the old man as regards to the former behaviour, having been corrupted according to the deceitful lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new man, which according to God was created in righteousness and true holiness. Therefore, putting off the false, speak truth each other with his neighbour, because we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. The one stealing, let him steal no more, but rather let him labour, working what is good with his hands, that he may have something to give to the one that has need. Let not any filthy word go out of your mouth, but if any is good to building up in respect the need that it may give grace to the one's hearing. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed to the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and tumult and evil speaking be put away from you along with all evil things. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, having forgiven one another, even also as God forgave you in Christ. So there's a pretty clear picture of God's expectations of the new creation. And we are very, very fortunate that expectation is covered by his grace. Because we might desire to put those things aside, but the flesh is still trying to grab hold of them and consume as many as possible. And so we have this ongoing battle. And you notice there in verse 22 it says, For you have put off the old man, and verse 24, and to put on the new man. Now that is implying, it's not just something like, um, you know, you've got a motorbike, sitting there and you've got a cover and you go Voop, and it's covered you know, God doesn't do that to us he has restored the relationship we have been restored to God through the, the broken relationship has been healed and now we have access to him and a future and eternity with him but there is a putting on there is an action required of us of the, both the putting on of the new creation which is um, which is illustrated in how we act and what comes out of our mouths, that is an active thing. We choose to speak. 
we choose to steal or not to steal, or to lie or not to lie. This is the putting on of the new man, or the putting on of the old man, the re-cloaking in the filthy rags, which we are free to do as well. And this is why I say this is covered in God's grace, because when we do stick on the filthy rags over his righteousness, when we take them off and repent, he is gracious enough to wash us and cleanse us from that. He knows our weaknesses. Um, that song we sing, Kev, he knows our need, uh, what is it? but he knows our weaknesses. He came as a man. He sees and knows all these things, knows we are faulty, and still loves us. It's an astounding, astounding situation, because I dare say not one of us here would be as graceful or forgiving if we were tried as much as we try God. And so there's a, a snapshot shot of the new creation and our active part in it. So the thing is, so you would think, this is why we are not God and he is, because our solutions are so foolish compared to his. Why, when we are born again and saved and we're a new creation, can we not then sort of all hold hands and skip through the Christian life blissfully? Yeah, we're talking about the Smurfs yesterday. La, 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 la. Wouldn't it be lovely? We're all skipping away to heaven. But it's not like that. We know that. Why can't it be like that? Why do we sin still as Christians or fall or desire these things? Have a look in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 verses 21 to 25. Because we're all in this situation. And I dare say Paul was a little more dedicated than most of us. And when you look at his life and what he suffered and his faithfulness and his great love for both his God and his people and for us yet to come, quite astounding. Romans 7 verses 21 is there to help us. I find then that the law, when I desire to do the right, that evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, there's the new creation, but I see another law in my members having warred against the law of my mind and taking me captive by the law of sin being in my members. The old creation, the old man trying to claw his way back. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself with a mind truly serve the law of God and with the flesh the law of sin. There's the battle. We all want to serve God, otherwise we wouldn't be here. Whether we do or not then comes down to firstly whether we accept him as Lord and Saviour you know, a, every human being is drawn to God somewhere along the line because you're, there's, a, there's a spiritual aspect 
Everyone somewhere knows there is a creator, even those that deny it strongly because their hearts have been totally hardened. But we're drawn to God and then we make the choice of believing he is Lord or not and submitting to that lordship. The battle is probably more difficult then because as an unsaved person, well, why would the devil care what you do? He's got you. So party up, carry on, doesn't matter. Die in your sin. That's his whole principle. He wants as many as God's creation to die in sin as possible. But for the Christian, the one who has submitted to the lordship of Christ, this battle starts. And it's sin trying to establish a hook in us again to make the righteousness of God somehow lessened. And so unsaved people perhaps say, oh yeah, claims he's a Christian, but look him, he's out there, I saw him drunk down the pub the other night, Oh, look at this, look at that. His life doesn't match up with his words and all sort of thing. And this is why when we speak about putting on the new man, it's a very high bar. We have been saved without any effort upon our own part, but once we accept that salvation, then God's standards are not low. God's standards are high. But fortunately, he's always there to lift us to those standards if we will call out to him. He doesn't sort of put a big pole in our hand and say, okay, there's a 17-foot pole vault, I'll leave you to it. And we've never even done it before. If there is a, a obstacle or a height, if we will draw into him, he will be, walk with us or carry us, or lift, whatever is required. If our hearts are right, he will lift us there. And this is, again, his grace in our lives as born-again Christians. And Paul, Paul struggled with this, he, and, but for our benefits too, he illustrated it very, very clearly, this internal struggle. The inward man and the outward man. So why does this happen? We're born again, we know the truth. We know we're sin that leads to death eternally. Because it's the attractiveness of sin. That's the thing. If sin were... If sin were Brussels sprouts, dead easy to refuse them, right? Because they're horrible and they're revolting and disgusting, right? So, if, <laughs> but there's always the odd person that likes them. <laughs> so, um, if sin were like that, it'd be very easy for us to say, no, I want no part of it. It disgusts me, it is horrible, and I refuse to partake. But of course, sin is more like chocolate. Lovely, really rewarding, or some really nice thing. Sin is attractive to the flesh. And that's why we have the struggles. Because unfortunately, in one way, after our salvation, we still have to live the rest of our lives in this flesh. And that's always going to be trying to drag us to hell. Because the flesh knows that it is going to return to dust and basically wants to take our spirit with it. With it. So the struggle is because the attractiveness of sin and that's why it's easy to be snared. 
because um, it's not like the enemy uh, puts a big neon sign up where that exit sign is, flashing sin this way with an arrow, and we all, oh, that looks good, and we all march through. He's not, he's subtle. The subtleties of sin come in from directions we don't even expect it. And they start to burrow, and all of a sudden, in nine months' time, we find ourselves, how did I get this far away from God? How did I get this far along this track? Because it's the subtlety of sin that ensnares the Christian. Is one of the things. Foolishness and ignorance of God's word or others and all this sort of thing. But sin is often subtle. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's blatant in your face and you can either refuse it or sometimes you succumb to it. It's a really powerful thing but it is not as powerful as Christ. He overcame sin and death and we are children of God. And so we have the power to overcome sin in him. We will not overcome it in our own strength. And so it's that the continual battle while we live in the flesh. And it explains it more in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 verse 17 reads, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, lest whatever you may will, these things you do. So, clear, God's made it clear, these two are opposed to each other. And this is one of the battlegrounds we face as Christians. And sometimes we win the battle, sometimes we lose the battle. But when we lose the battle, when we fall, the measure of our relationship with God, I believe, is what do we do with that. When we have fallen, when we have sinned, when we have failed, what do we do with it? We have several choices. Unfortunately, one of them that is often used is we justify it with excuses. We justify our shortcomings or we justify our wrong behaviour. Basically, when you boil it down, we justify our sin to ourselves. It makes us feel better because we don't want to be that, that sort of Christian and know that that can't be right. Or we try and hide it. You can cover it up because we know if we cover it well enough, God won't be able to see it. That's what we convince ourselves in our mind. But of course it's totally untrue because he can see down to the smallest sub-atom in our body, if you like. He knows everything. There is no hiding from God. Or we can move the blame to God, which often happens. Our circumstance, God, why did you do this? Think Christians blame God. Why did you do this to me? None of those things, of course, are going to help us. When we have sinned, when we have fallen, repentance from the heart is the only way to be washed clean again. And that's not just saying, oh, sorry God, slipped up there, carrying on, and then repeating it 
a week after and a week after. Oh, sorry, God. Sorry, God. Sorry, God. Sorry, God. Sometimes it is a long battle. I'm not saying it's instantaneous. Sometimes it's a very long battle and we will fall more than once. But he reads our hearts when we come to him in repentance. He knows the surface sorry. <laughs> you know, when your kids oh, say sorry. Sorry. Mm-hmm. That sort of insincere apology. God knows that one when we say, oh, I'm sorry, Lord, and I won't do it again sort of thing. He knows whether we are truly hurt in the heart because we have hurt him. That's repentance, knowing that we have hurt God and been broken in our hearts for it and repenting. And sometimes that starts with a sort of mechanical sorry, if you like, but you've got to take it further because you know yourself if you are really sorry but it's the right direction and then you have to get your heart involved, not just your mind. So it's not just a sorry of the head, it's a sorry of the heart. And so that, you know, all the other stuff that we can do just um, doesn't doesn't cut it. We can't blame anyone else for our sin, we can't hide our sin, we can't justify our sin. And, you know, in James chapter 1 is made very, very clear where the problem lies. James chapter 1 verses 12 to 15. This illustrates it very clearly. Blessed is the man who endures temptation because having been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one being tempted say, I am tempted from God. For God is not tempted by evils, and he tempts no one. But each one is tempted by his lusts, being drawn away and seduced by them. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is fully formed, brings forth death. So there is, we can't blame God for it. He's made that very, very clear. And the other thing is, we can't blame the devil for it, really. You hear the expression, when someone's caught, oh, the devil made me do it. No, your love of sin made you do it you cannot blame the devil he might be the tempter but we are the overcomers supposedly in Christ he can't force you to sin he can tempt you to sin but so we can't really blame him that's his job description send you to hell that's his full time occupation so we can't blame him we can only look at ourselves when we listen to his whispering. So, as I said before, it is an active thing to put on the new man. And it is explained more in Colossians chapter 3 because if you live a passive Christian life, then you're probably going to struggle in areas. 
and you can get very blasé about salvation and very careless with your salvation. Colossians 3 verses 8 to 11 reads, Now put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, shameful speech out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, having put off the old man with his deeds, and having put on the new, having been renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, foreigner, Scythian, slave or freeman, but Christ is all things. That is very, very clear, an active Christian life. It is not handed to us on a plate. Salvation is. Salvation is handed to us as a free gift out of the immense love that Christ has for every human being. We choose to accept that plate of salvation or not. But after that, we've got work to do in order to maintain that relationship with God. He's done all the work. He's done all the hard stuff. He died this horrific death and suffered totally unjustly. He's done it all. And while we're living in the flesh, it's our turn. Looking at our Christian lives, what's God's view about this new creation and the old creation? Romans chapter 8. This was God's expectations and understanding in this passage. Romans 8 verses 1 to 13. There is therefore now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus set me free from the law of sin and death. For the law, being powerless in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and concerning sin, condemned sin in the flesh, so the righteous, so that the righteous demand of the law might be fulfilled in us those not walking according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the ones that are according to the flesh, mind the things of the flesh. So if you're drawn to the world and, and indulge yourself in the world all the time, then you're walking according to the flesh, and those are the things that are your priority. If the things of the world are a higher priority than the things of God, then you are walking in the flesh. That is not to say we do not interact with the world, but we can't withdraw in some isolated, little, exclusive Christian group. We are called to be in the world. That is the of-the-world thing. We are called to be careful. We don't cross that line. And the ones according to the Spirit mind the things of the Spirit. For the mind of the flesh is death, 
but the mind of the spirit is life and peace because the mind of the flesh is enmity towards God for it has not been subjected to the law of God and neither can it be. The unsaved cannot be subjected to the law of God. And those being in the flesh are not able to please God. There are some awfully wonderful people around doing great things in the world but it is not pleasing to God because they have spat on and rejected his son. We perceive them through our fleshly eyes as heroes and a lot of them are socially a lot more effective than us and are doing wonderful things. But when they stand before Christ, what is he going to say to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. All the things of the world will be that they have done, spent their fortunes on, philanthropy, good works will burn. They are, those being in the flesh are not able to please God. You cannot buy salvation. But you are not in the flesh, but in spirit, since the spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone has not the spirit of Christ, this one is not his. But if Christ is in you, the body indeed is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. We are made righteous through Christ's sacrifice. That body of sin has been put to death. And all we can do, all the flesh can do, is try and drape rotten parts of that old body over our new gown of righteousness, if we allow it. But if the spirit of the one having raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, the one having raised Christ from the dead will also make your mortal bodies live through the indwelling of a spirit in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the practices of the body, you will live. Very clear, very, very clear what God's perspective on the flesh is and the spirit. And so there's a couple of little sidetracks I'm going to go down as I finish. But that is the guts of it. We are in this battle every day. We desire to do the things of God that we find ourselves doing the things of the flesh. And he is the only way that we can progress and change that balance because once you start and I'll speak about this in a moment one of the little side tracks once you start along the track of indulging the flesh it can be very very dangerous but a simple and faithful heart towards God will be guided by him and guarded by him if in our decisions and our reactions we will look towards Christ, and I remember when our girls were young, the whole thing was around that's when they were young, it's quite a few years ago um, they had the bands W, W, 
WJD. They used to wear WWJD. What would Jesus do? Perhaps we should all have those bands and look at them in our day-to-day lives. Nick brought this out last week when he was speaking. What would we do if Jesus was walking physically alongside us every day? How would our behaviour change? It would change immensely. He is there, but because we are so dependent upon the flesh for our senses, we tend not to see that. We know it up here, we know it in here, but somehow it often doesn't translate to our day-to-day living. And so the band, What Would Jesus Do?, is quite a good reminder when we're trying to make decisions about something. Because we actually do know what he would do in most circumstances. We just choose not to ask the question because the flesh says, hey, let's just indulge ourselves for a while. There's no harm. It's not sin. And God will understand. You're just human after all. All very, very subtle. Um, Now, talking about the flesh, there's a couple of things that struck my mind. I'm not quite sure exactly how they're connected, but I hope they are, and if they're not, I you will not take them on. Um, one of the things about the flesh, and one of the, the things that Christians often use, a percentage of Christians, not all Christians, it seems to be a fairly, now it seems to be a smaller percentage than it was a few years ago, was deliverance. Now, there used to be, touring through the country, deliverance ministries. And also, when I asked them, I spoke, I told you of my unbelief in any ministry that calls itself a certain sort of ministry because we are only given one ministry, and that is the ministry of reconciliation for the unsaved. We are given gifts, and deliverance can be one of those things, but for a man to build a ministry upon his gift, I believe, is wrong. But these used to be really popular deliverance ministries. And they were usually very well attended. And over the years, you know, had different people come and say, oh, this is Christians, born-again Christians. Oh, I need deliverance. You know, can you pray for me for deliverance? Please do correct me if I'm wrong here. And then, and make, oh, and then I'll get up and tell you I was wrong. Has to happen sometime. It did happen once when I was about 17. But however, <laughs> um, but deliverance, I cannot find any example in the Bible of a born again Christian being possessed by a demon. Nor of Christ nor any of the disciples delivering a born-again Christian. Now, if you do know of an instance, please tell me, because I'm labouring under under error. But I cannot find any born-again Christian that has been possessed by a demon. And yet, in this 
in these days and, and you know over the last 20 or 30 years, Christians are asking for deliverance. From what? And the thing is, it was encouraged, unfortunately, by these men who had built up these ministries because it's quite starry, really out there. And I remember Marie and I had been to a few meetings years ago and there's these guys spitting and yelling and screaming trying to deliver all sorts of stuff out of you. And people just accepted it. It was nonsense. And yet we accepted it because the desire is there for the power of God to be present. We love to see the power of God and that is a good thing. But it has to be the power of God, not the power of man manifesting and calling itself the things of God. And so these guys flourished because when you say, as a Christian, I need deliverance, there's one of the excuses. You're blaming either God for allowing you to be possessed by this thing or you're blaming the devil for getting in there and possessing you. And you need deliverance from it. No, as I said before, you need to look a little closer to home. Because as a born-again Christian, Christ has overcome all those things. And there is no way that a born-again Christian can be possessed by a demon unless you willingly choose to recant of your salvation and thoroughly reject Christ. Then you could be in a spot of bother. But as a born-again Christian, you are saved. And you are not subject to the power of the enemy beyond the chain that God has him on in your life. He's only allowed to do so much as it was illustrated on Job. And that is God's sovereign choice. That you have no need of deliverance, you were delivered at the cross. And when you accepted Christ, that came into effect. And so that brings me to another little offshoot of that, generational curses. There's another common thing in the Christian circles. We need to break this generational curse. In that Second Corinthians I used, at the start of this, it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There is not parentheses there that say, except for generational curses. You'll have to deal with those later on. That is not the way it works. If all things are created new, then that is broken at the cross. Any generational curse is broken then. And all things have become new. Now you can enter back into that, um, but if, if you've got to ask the question, was Christ's death and resurrection not powerful enough to overcome any generational curse that was on your family. Again, it's often used as an excuse. Oh yeah, it's a it's a curse. I need can you pray for the breaking of this curse over me? Because we have indulged in the sin. Now I do not discount the genetic propensity for things in a family. My lots alcohol. All the males in my family, alcoholics, basically. And so, and that is a propensity and attractiveness towards alcohol. I had it. 
my dad was, my brother was, my granddad missed the boat when they moved out from England because he was on a three-day bender. It's in the males all, all through there. That's a genetic propensity to alcohol. Uh, addictions can be in a, are generally a, a genetic propensity towards something, an attraction towards that of the, of the flesh. But it's not a generational curse. Those things may be put on you. They're entirely different subject. But as a born-again Christian, no. But you still struggle with the things of the flesh. But you can't blame generational curses for it. You've got to, again, look closer to home. And so um, what we do have a problem with those born-again Christians that often is confused with needing of deliverance are strongholds. Now, strongholds differ from possession. You can build a stronghold in your mind, or your heart, whichever way you want to put it, that gains power. Because it is an area that you choose to withhold from the sovereignty of God. I've done this myself, and I've seen it grow in power and strength. Because I chose to think, I got born again Christian, I trust God in all things, great, la la, great, everything's going to be wonderful. Just, but what if Marie and I are out one night and we are attacked by someone and God doesn't come to the party and protect me? Well, protect Marie. <laughs> Here, take her. Um, <laughs> what, what happens? In that case, I think I'd better hold on to that because one of the weird things about me was that I had, I was always had disproportionate upper body strength for my size, very, very powerful, and a great disregard probably for human life. And if I was in a situation that was fearful enough, I do believe that I could have permanently maimed or killed someone. So, without regret. Um, born again, I thought, I'll just hold on to that, just in case in that situation God doesn't come through. And I planted the foundation for a stronghold. And because that was always there, it grew. It it got more powerful, and it grew in strength until I could no longer control it. And there was a violent aspect in my Christian life. I didn't come along beat beat up people at church or anything, but it was just below the surface. And we went to a meeting in Hamilton once and there was a guy there. We went up for prayer and he prayed for me and he must have hit something on this because all I wanted to do was on the spot, pick him up by the throat and fire him across the stage. It was a good choice not to because I found out later he was an ex-US Marine. (laughs) So it may not have gone the way that I had envisioned it. But then I realised the extent of the problem because that was a rage. And it came from all this the stronghold that I'd built and not surrendering this to God. And I came back here, I talked to Glenn, who was then the pastor. He knew a chap in, in Palmerston who was an amazing, gentle guy and he had delivered a people non-Christians. I'm waiting there because people then presumed that he could deliver Christians and all sort of thing and it was you know, one of those weird sort of 
Times, but this guy was the genuine article, and he says, I'm not going to deliver you. He said, we just need to sit down and we need to look at this and take you through what has happened and submit it to God. And he, there was no, you think, oh, right, great smashing of the stronghold and God's light will beam out. No, it just dissolved. No glory to the enemy, no glory to anything except to God because God just dissolved it as soon as it was submitted to him. And these are the things that can grow in a Christian's mind. They are unsurrendered areas of our lives that grow into strongholds because they are still things of the flesh. It is not a deliverance issue, it is a submission issue. And so learn to you know, look at these things when you're talking to other Christians or trying to advise them. Someone comes to you and says, I need prayer, I need deliverance. Talk to them about it. Okay, that was that little rant. And so, to finish it is Romans chapter 6, verses 5 to 7, which will sum it up whether the flesh or the creation is the bees and knees. Romans 6, chapters five, uh, Romans 6, verses 5 to 7 reads, For if we have been joined together in the likeness of his death, so also shall we be in the resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be nullified, so that we no longer serve sin. For the one that died has been justified from sin. God's great gift to us. We are dead to sin until we try and breathe life into that corpse. So when you're struggling with things, the new creation in the flesh, one of the best tools you can have is to look at your extent of belief or unbelief. If you believe in the things of God more each day, just a little bit more each day, you build on that, then the flesh will start to wither. If you start to believe, or if you have unbelief, about God's power, purpose and sovereignty, then the flesh will start to prosper. It's the old white dog, black dog thing, which one are you feeding? And we need to look at these because we have circumstances, illnesses, adverse circumstances, people disappointing us and letting us down, Christians letting us down, we get all bitter and twisted about it. All these things, is God in control of this? or not. Neville here could shake his fist at God and say, why have you done this to me? I was talking to him on Friday night. He said, well, we've just got to trust God. I remember years ago, a girl here, three brain tumours. And we prayed, lots of people prayed for her to be healing, and she died. But in that time that she was here, she said, I've got to thank God for these tumours because I would never have had the relationship with him had I not been ill. Had I not had a terminal disease, I would not have had the relationship and she used to f just project the love of God. Always stuck with me. Three brain tumours and that was her attitude. She was grateful to God. So just look at your circumstances. It says be thankful in all things, which is an awfully tough ask because we're ungrateful creatures at heart 
And if we don't get our own way, we pack the little paddy and stamp our feet. But be grateful on all things. Try to be grateful on all things. Sometimes you won't be. Then you go to God. Yeah, I know. And sort it out. But you are new creations which are destined for eternal life with the one who loves you so. And nothing can take that away from you. So Father, I just ask you to take these words and just to make my foolishness disappear and wither up and only the word of the living God to stay in hearts and minds. We thank you for this wonderful, wonderful salvation that cost you so dearly, but you gave to us so freely. And we pray we may be worthwhile servants that will honour and bless your name and bring this message of salvation to those that are yet perishing. Thank you, Lord.